London, New York, Barcelona. Today from Ireland, you can fly to almost any place. But what if you could fly to any time? If you could experience events that change the world, if you could meet the people who lived through history, would you do it? Welcome to a new series of Time Travels, the programme where we explore the past. Are you ready? Fasten your seatbelts. It could be a bumpy journey. OK, we've landed in Dublin, Ireland, and the year is 1940. The Second World War is underway. Dear Bill, we're settling in OK here in Dublin. The journey over was very long, but we had a lovely warm welcome from Aunt Chrissy and the cousins. Little Dorothy and Lillian miss London very much, but I've been reminding them how lucky we are to have relatives in Ireland, because a lot of their friends have been evacuated and they're going to stay with people they don't know from Adam. The boat across from England was very choppy and a lot of passengers got sick. I felt a bit queasy at one point, but I just stared out at the horizon like you suggested and that definitely helped. Dorothy and Lillian didn't seem to mind the rocking much. Aunt Chrissy told them that that's because Grandad was a sailor, so they must have been born with good sea legs. I hope you and Aggie are staying safe in London. We tell the cousins about the bombs falling every night and us having to go and sleep in the tube station underground. And Neve said she would be terrified, but Dorothy said that we Londoners are pretty tough. Donna Bay is much quieter than home, and Aunt Chrissy and I bring the kids to the beach almost every day. Dorothy said she wishes you could see the size of the sandcastle that she built. It was enormous. She was proud as punch when Jack said he had never managed to make one that tall, and he's lived here all his life. The girls are both very nervous to start school next week. Everyone here says their accents are funny, but that will pass, I'm sure. I know that Jack and Neve will be in school with them, but I hope they make other friends too. Auntie Chrissy says that perhaps the war will be over soon and we can go home. That would be great. Lillian says please give Misty a hug from her and make sure you don't forget to tell her that she's the greatest cat in the world. Lots of love, Maria. Everybody pinches my butter They won't leave my butter alone And nothing is better than butter For keeping the old man at home Everybody says I'm a My dear sister, Aggie and I were so pleased to get your letter and to hear that you're all doing well in Dublin. Tell Dorothy... I wish we could have seen the sandcastle too. Aggie says, have you been swimming? She reckons it might be a bit cold for you. Things are okay. Because of my job as a railway worker, I've been told I'm needed here and should not enlist as a soldier. So I'm volunteering with the home guard and will soon be helping out on night patrols. 
Aggie's nervous about it all, but I'm really looking forward to doing my bit. Tell the girls that a lot of their school friends have been evacuated to the countryside. Jimmy, Caroline, Annie and the Daly twins. So there are very few children around at the moment, and there wouldn't be many people to play with if they were still here. Mrs Potter's little ones were sent to a farm in Yorkshire, and they've been learning how to milk the cows. Everyone will have so many interesting stories to tell us when you all get home. We are sleeping in the tube station most nights now, and a lot of the neighbours are there too. Sometimes, when the bombs are very noisy, we have a sing-song, and there's a nice feeling of everyone helping each other out. We all shared some apple tart the other day, and it cheered me right up. Aggie and I miss you all terribly, and Misty has been sleeping on Lillian's bed. Aggie said she's allowed to, but only while you're away. Sending much love and kisses to you all. Yours, Bill. I think we should find out a bit more about the Second World War. Ask an expert. My name is Dermot Bulger and I am an education assistant with the National Museum of Ireland uh, in the Decorative Arts and History wing of the museum uh, in Collins Barracks in Dublin. So that means that I'm involved, say, in our schools programme, so organising tours for schools, um, creating schools programmes, uh, but also involved in events at the museum will organise like uh, talks and lectures, that kind of thing. Why did the Second World War happen? There's a number of reasons why the Second World War begins, but the main one to understand is when Germany this time was being led by a man called Adolf Hitler and uh, his political party, the Nazi party. And they very much had the aim of trying to make Germany this great power who would rule all of Europe. So he did this by um, so he building up the German army and uh, making alliances or forming almost like teams with other countries to so say Italy for example uh, or say he tried to do the same thing with uh, Russia or as known at the time uh, the USSR so he then in 19 well, the end of the 1930s began to slowly invade other countries and very famously in 1938 he tried to invade Czechoslovakia and while he took over some of Czechoslovakia uh, other countries in, in Europe such as say Britain and France they said okay will give you that bit of Czechoslovakia. But if you try and take any more, then we're going to basically have to go to war. And then he ends up taking over the rest of Czechoslovakia. And then the 1st of September, he invades Poland. And the war is declared a few days later. Who fought in the Second World War? So I guess to an extent, there's almost sort of like two teams in the Second World War. So one are the Axis powers. So this is made up of Germany and Adolf Hitler. Uh, along with, say, uh, Italy, uh, Benito Mussolini being their leader, and Japan as well. But we've also got smaller, lesser-known countries fighting with them, like, say, Romania and Hungary, for example. And then on the other side, you've got the Allied powers, who make up, say, Britain, France, the US, uh, the Soviet Union. Later on, you see Australia, China joining them as well. And it's worth saying that one country that doesn't actually fight is Ireland. We remain neutral during the Second World War. However, at the same time, we do see with 70,000 uh, Irishmen from Southern Ireland signing up to fight uh, in the Second World War. As worth saying that Northern Ireland, which is uh, still a part of Britain, they are involved in the war effort. About 50,000 of them sign up as well. 
What was Ireland like during the Second World War? So Southern Ireland, the Second World War was known as the emergency. Ireland, like I said earlier, uh, remained neutral. But that never got rid of the fear that Ireland could be invaded by Germany or by Britain. And so you saw a build of a thing called the Irish Defence Forces in 1940, 1941. By about 1942, there's 40,000 men have joined up with that, basically trying to just defend Ireland if someone does come and invade. And these people are often known as E-men or emergency men. But we see things as well like uh, censorship becomes very important in Ireland. This idea of sort of trying to control what people are, are reading or sending to each other in case any information that the government doesn't want getting out comes out. So, uh, for example, if you say send a letter in the post, then it would be opened and examined. Uh, sections might be blacked out so they couldn't, and your letter might be, you might be able to read it by the end. And we say a small seal on the envelope indicating that this has been uh, opened. Uh, I say newspapers would be the same. The information being given to people would be very much censored. There was also issues with food as well. Food had to be rationed, so you couldn't just have as much as you wanted. Uh, and certain foods, like say sugar, tea, and even bread had to be eaten in quite in much smaller quantities because that is all coming from abroad and it's much harder to get access to and you would see irish ships sailing over to other neutral countries like portugal for example to get food to bring back over to the irish people uh, and then finally as well because coal was very much rationed as well say uh, houses being heated for example was a lot harder to have uh, and also when stuff like say cars taxis even trains you see an awful lot less of because they couldn't be run as easily what was life like for children during the Second World War? I suppose we're saying that for the countries that fight life to children is very, very difficult. You take somewhere like, say, England, for example, there's a thing called Operation uh, Pied Piper, which is where they try to move as many kids out of the city as possible as quickly as they can because they're afraid of bombs being dropped in the city and kids getting hurt. So in three days, that you see 1.9 million children evacuated into the countryside where it's less likely they're going to be uh, attacked. For those who stay, they have to run the risk of uh, bombs being fallen on them. So there's many nights in, say, 1940, 1941, where kids in England have to hide in the underground stations. Because if they stay in their houses, it's possible their houses could collapse on top of them uh, and they won't survive. They've, of course, also got the fear of their parents being off fighting in the war. Obviously, their, their fathers or their uh, brothers, or, um, brothers or uncles being involved in physical fighting, then maybe their, their mothers or sisters or aunts being involved and they working as nurses. We also saw rationing as well, which meant that, again, like I was saying earlier, there's not as much access to food as there would have been. And then in some other countries, like say Germany, for example, you'd groups like the Hitler Youth, which were encouraging kids to be involved in actually fighting in the war. And especially in Germany, as the war is progressing, we see younger and younger kids fighting in Germany. We see stories of 12-year-olds, for example, fighting in the war. We also see huge amount of kids being separated from their parents. Like I said earlier, the parents fighting in the war, but also through deportation, through families being split up. And this is one of the very sad consequences of the war, that many of these people maybe wouldn't see their families again. So in this context, I mean, the war for children in Ireland isn't as bad. You don't see this to the same extent, but they do have to live with the fear of Ireland being attacked, especially in the early years of the war. They have to deal with the very occasional bombings that Ireland sees during the war and the possibility of their relatives going over to fight and not coming back. Did any bombs fall in Ireland during the Second World War? So because Ireland was neutral, it meant that the country, countries weren't allowed to bomb Ireland. Uh, however, very famously on the 31st of May 1941, we see four bombs being dropped on Dublin by a German plane, and they land on the North Strand here in Dublin. 
which means that 28 people died, 90 were injured, and 300 houses were destroyed. Uh, now, the German bomber later claimed that he'd mistaken Dublin for uh, a British city. However, the, government, uh, the German government after the war did have to pay money to the Irish government for doing it. So one solution, actually, the Irish government have to the risk of dropping bombs is to build these um, beehive shelters for civilians, which are like igloo-shaped shelters made entirely of concrete. Their walls are 32 centimetres thick and they're about two metres tall, meaning about six people could fit inside it. And they were mainly built behind public houses, especially around the Dublin area. And if a bomb dropped close to 15 metres away, you'd be able to survive uh, because the walls were so strong. The government would provide pamphlets for people so they would know how they could build their own if they'd be able to afford it. And we actually have one of these BF structures actually here in the National Museum in Collins Barracks. Now, uh, because Northern Ireland was taking part in the war, it meant that it was uh, free to be uh, attacked. And we do see uh, bombs being dropped on Belfast the 15th, 16th of April and the 4th and 5th of May in 1941. We see 96,000 German bombs being dropped on uh, the city in April alone, with 1,100 civilians dying. Uh, and very famously, the Irish government, being led by Eamon de Valera, decided to send up uh, 13 fire trucks and 70 men up to Belfast to try and fight the flames, which actually breaks Irish neutrality. Breaking neutrality basically means that Ireland wasn't supposed to take a side during the war. It wasn't meant to show favouritism, but by sending fire trucks up to stop fire in Belfast because of German bombs being dropped on them, that was breaking neutrality in favour of the Allies, in favour of the British Army, uh, which was against the rules of being a neutral country in the war. What changes did the Second World War bring? So, in regards to the war itself, we see new technologies being introduced, which is very common in warfare. So, stuff that we'd associate normally with war now is emerging really properly for the first time. Like, say, tanks, for example, were very, very common. Really, you saw them a bit in the First World War, but it's only in the Second World War they become kind of become as important as they sort of are now. And one new type of warfare developed is the idea of nuclear weapons, incredibly powerful bombs, uh, sometimes known as atom bombs, which can cause massive devastations to civilians wherever they land. Uh, we see two being dropped by the United States on Japan at the end of the war, and it's now illegal for them to be used. They've never actually been dropped on civilians since then. One key change that it brings is sort of the, the map of Europe being almost split in half politically between the West, uh, which is a, sort of very a democratic area like Britain, Ireland, France, and then the communism of the East, uh, countries like the USSR and Poland, Romania, Yugoslavia. And the term used to divide it was the term Iron Curtain, with democracy on the west side and uh, communism on the east. And even countries are split up. So Germany, for example, is split in half between West Germany and East Germany. And even Berlin, they actually build a wall which stays up for 30 years. Democracy on one side, communism on the other. Uh, and it literally means that there are families in Berlin who, over the course of 30 years, they won't see each other because they can't physically get over this wall because they're not allowed to cross to the other side. Did you know that the youngest serviceman in the Second World War was only 12 years old? Calvin Graham served with the US Navy until he was honorably discharged at the age of 13 when his mother reported him for lying about his age. Weird, but true. Here in London, Lucy Tyndall from the Imperial War Museum is going to tell us what it was like for those involved in the Second World War on board a Royal Navy warship. So we are on HMS Belfast, which is a cruiser. Um, 
and we are on the Thames. So we're in the middle of the Thames, we're right next to London Bridge Station and we're opposite the Tower of London. We're permanently moored here, so we've been, uh, the ship's been moored here since uh, 1971 um, when it was brought in and then we're kind of permanently placed where we are with um, anchors and chains and things. So HMS Belfast had quite a few different jobs during the Second World War and actually spent three years out of action. So um, its first job was part of the maritime blockade of Germany, which meant basically stopping ship, merchant ships carrying potentially soldiers and arms and food from getting to Germany to try and stop um, the German forces, basically. Um, so that was the kind of first thing it did. But unfortunately, um, in November 1939, the ship hit a magnetic mine. So that was something that went off when the ship passed over the top of it. So it was out of action for three years, being repaired. And then when it came back, it was part of the Arctic convoys. So that was armed ships. So um, naval ships would support merchant ships going to Russia. So it was called the Soviet Union at the time, but we know it as Russia now. They would be carrying arms, so guns and weapons and things like that for the, the troops over there, but also food and supplies. Um, so HMS Belfast was a, um, an escort ship that would protect those merchant ships. So when the ship was first launched, there were 761 crew members, but that increased to just under 1,000 during the war. Each person would have a hammock, so that's like a canvas strip that was tied up and strung between some metal bars that the, the sailors would lie in to sleep but they were only 52 centimetres apart, so they were very, very squashed. Um, and so you would, you would share your mess deck or, or your area of the mess deck with maybe 10 or 12 people. The ship had a cat. So um, in this room, there's a tiny, tiny little hammock for the, sh the ship's cat. So they, they had lots of food stored on board, so obviously there was a chance of mice and rats coming on board. So basically, the cat was a working cat that would kill the mice and rats, but was also kind of much-loved pet for the crew on board. So HMS Belfast was part of the Arctic convoys, which in themselves were quite difficult. So um, very, very, very cold conditions. So often um, ice would build up on the top of the ship, so the crew had to take that off because it was so heavy that it might tip the ship over. Um, it was so cold that um, if you were to touch metal with bare hands, your hands might freeze to the metal. Um, there's a story from one of our veterans who had gone out onto the deck and um, a big wave came over, and ordinarily it would have swept him off the deck, but because he was had hold, it started to hold on to a piece of metal, his hand got stuck. So he, he was stuck to the rail, but that saved him from going overboard. Um, also the cold water, if the ship was sunk or hit by a, a U-boat or some sort of torpedo, which was a risk that they kind of faced all of the time, once you are in the water, you didn't really stand a chance because it was so cold. <laughs> The Second World War was a terrible conflict which claimed many lives. Many people have written about their experiences. But the story of one child became very famous and her diary has been read by millions. This is the story of Anne Frank. Anne Frank was born in the city of Frankfurt, Germany on the 12th of June 1929. At this time, many people had begun to support Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party. Hitler hated the Jews, and he believed that they were responsible for all the problems facing the country. Anne and her family were Jewish, and like many other Jewish people, they decided that they must leave Germany, and so they moved to the Netherlands. 
Anne settled into school in Amsterdam and made many friends. She was confident and she loved to write, thinking that she might one day become a writer. But life would soon change for Anne and her family. In September 1939, Germany invaded Poland and the Second World War began. Soon afterwards, the Netherlands was also invaded by the Nazis and Anne and her family were trapped. The Nazis began to introduce laws that made life very difficult for the Jews. They were forced to wear a yellow star on their clothes and they were not allowed to go to certain places like cinemas, parks or non-Jewish shops. Eventually, a letter arrived that demanded that Anne's older sister, Margot, must be sent to a labour camp. Anne's parents were scared that something bad would happen to Margot if she went, and Anne and Margot's father, Otto, was determined not to let this happen. So he made a plan. Otto worked out a way to create the perfect hiding place at the offices where he worked. Some of the people who used to work for Otto helped him to build a small living space above the warehouse. It could be accessed only by a staircase that was hidden behind a bookcase. Anne named it the Secret Annex. For Anne's 13th birthday, she was given a diary, and soon after this, she and her family moved into the annex. Four of Otto's former employees helped them in secret. After a while, another family of three joined them, and after that, one more man came to live there too. The space was very cramped and they all had to be careful to stay quiet during the day when people were working downstairs. They had to whisper and they covered the windows with black paper so no one could see in. And of course they could never leave. They hoped to stay in hiding until the war was over. Life in the annex was difficult and it must have been hard to pass the time. For two years Anne kept a diary she named her diary Kitty, after a friend of hers, and in it she wrote about her thoughts, feelings and life in the annex. She also wrote short stories and began a novel. She hoped that one day after the war she might be a published author. But on the 4th of August 1944, the building where Anne and her family were hiding was raided by the Nazis. All of the eight people in the annex were arrested and sent to concentration camps. Anne and her sister Margot were separated from their parents and sent to a camp called Bergen-Belsen. The camp was cold and dirty and the conditions for the prisoners were very bad. Sadly, Anne and her sister Margot died of a disease called typhus just a few months before the war ended. Their father Otto was the only person from the annex to survive and when he returned to Amsterdam, he found that Anne's diary had been saved. He read it and decided to publish it, hoping that it might teach people about the terrible things that had happened during the war and of the dangers of hatred against others. Today, Anne Frank's diary has been translated into over 70 languages and there have been many films and documentary programmes made about her experience. The house where Anne hid is now a museum and over one million people visit it every year. Home sweet home. And the airport is just as busy as ever. 
And like I said, you can fly to almost anywhere or any time. So, where do you want to go next? This programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.